Well, boys, looks like you started the fun without me. You're all sick. Every last one of you. We're going to need a bigger gun. What's the matter? You scared of things that go boom? My name is Eric, and I don't have a joke for Michael Gesser. I'm here for the root beer barrels. Okay, thanks for bringing something to the intro. You're welcome. You're welcome. We've officially completed the intro. Oh no, there's more. We're doing, so the original idea, um, if you're here today, welcome. This is Double Feature. We're doing Once Upon a Time in America with Pee Wee's Big Holiday. Now, before you (laughs) just turn it off. The original idea today was to revisit a project that we started around this time last year when you relocated Mm -hmm. from Los Angeles, California to New York City, New York. Uh, And so we were kind of circling back to New York so that uh, we could get a little temperature check on that for you. And also, you know, most good movies are set in New York, so... (laughs) That works. Uh-huh. But what I think we ended up accidentally finding, and, and we'll obviously talk about it today, is what happens when you take the most, the maybe the least, the least surreal, most pragmatic look at a place and how it influences individuals versus the absolute most surreal, top-level no insight into the actual city and how that influences people. And furthermore, the reason that I think this is actually great for the conversation you can offer having moved there is once upon a time in America is a movie that is very much about people who were born in New York city and fully sculpted by it. They're essentially the red blood cells of the New York streets versus somebody like, who you also are, which is some ignorant person from, I assume, the Midwest, <laughs> who just sings songs about New York City that are that are factually inaccurate, like how the Empire State Building is the tallest building in the world. Right, right. Uh, so funny. <laughs> so, so funny. I'm just like, how? what year was this song written? <laughs> it was written in the year of Once Upon a Time in America, I think is when right. that fucking song is written. Yeah, it's funny. There, there's sort of, I wouldn't necessarily say an outsider view of the city, but it they're both views of the city that I don't recognize for different reasons. And we'll talk about the P we want. I don't really want to say much about it all in the intro, but the once upon a time in America one is simply that it's so fucking old. So, you know, I'm not going to do what my, my gut instinct was, which was like, try to craft a double feature of what does the New York experience actually feel like. Right. I'm not going to be able to tell you today what that is. But I will tell you why I can't tell you and why I actually think no one can. This is a New York thing for a a special reason, but I think this is actually true of all cities on a long enough timeline. Even, dear listener, your own. So having teased all that out and not wanting to reveal any of why that is yet, I will take a pause for the Patreon. Ah, patreon.com forward slash double feature. Is your mattress giving you back problems at night? Go to patreon.com forward slash blue apron. (laughs) How to ads work? I don't know how to. Blue mattress, Casper the friendly apron. If you go to patreon.com forward slash double feature, you can pay 
whatever you can afford, the price of your morning coffee, and you too can save the life of uh, a podcast, this podcast, the one you're listening to right now. Uh, you've already showed your hand. You've gotten this far into the episode. We know you have, you're finding something here. Maybe what you're not finding is the stop button in your iTunes, but you're not, oh. you are finding something. Um, it was so much easier on Zooms when they didn't have stop buttons. You know, that really right. helped our show a lot. If you want to keep the things you love alive, you better give us money or we'll kill them. Um, the <laughs> podcast can be one of them. Um, so go to patreon.com forward slash double feature. Give us a little money. We'll give you 14 years of podcast back catalog in return. Um, you can maybe even pick some movies. There's a whole bunch of stuff, but at the end of the day, we just want to come back next week. We want you to come back with us and we need your help to make that a reality. Yeah, I'm going to try really hard to give our our really unique and maybe twisted perspectives on these movies today. I think that, uh, you know, Once Upon a Time in America is a famous fucking movie. Everybody knows this movie. Mm -hmm. And Pee Wee Herman is certainly an American fixture. So if you haven't seen this movie, you've heard of Pee Wee Herman at least. And so... You know, we watch these, and a product of watching these films sometimes is I have a lot of weird ideas that aren't necessarily the meat of the film, the, uh, you know, the well-worn path. So the unique take that we're pleading for you to keep in existence, I feel like that will very much be part of the bizarre DNA that is today's episode. But maybe we could start with a log line just to make it oh feel a little more normal. So Once Upon a Time in America uh, tells the story of, um, what's his name? Nucky Thompson? No. Oh my God. Uh, noodles. noodles. <laughs> um, Robert De Niro's Noodles. And this movie, this movie, like like so many great movies, is told out of chronological order. But the chronological logline, um, Noodles grows up in the mean streets of, what is it? The Lower East Side of Manhattan. Yeah. And, it's the uh, financial district. It's a little bit, yeah. uh, you know, I sent you a screenshot earlier. It's, you know, the view from Dumbo. Right. It's a cool place. It's a cool part of New York. Um, and so he, uh, he comes up with a bunch of other rascally kids and they become crime kingpins of New York City, especially through prohibition, while also trying to grow as people. <laughs> yeah, they're scrappy startup with prohibition. Yeah, it's like Facebook but in the ni- early 1900s. The prohibition thing is is such a metaphor for what I wanted to talk about today which would be a great transition, but I don't feel like we've earned the transition yet. I want to make sure we hit this uh this logline and also because I'm a little confused, you know, I'm watching this movie and I keep waiting for the scene where they band together to fight the killer clown that keeps dragging them into the sewer or whatever. <laughs> and they, they never quite get there. So I think maybe that's part of where my confusion was. Yeah, we see them as kids. We see them as adults. Wow, actually, that was part of the joke that I didn't even realize was also fucking from It. <laughs> weird. Super weird. And, uh, and we get to see them in uh, old age makeup. And so we're getting, you know, a couple phases in their life. Plus, we don't know how long he's in that opium den. That could be a whole, a whole. Uh, it could. He, decade he literally well. may be in the opium den the whole movie, for all we actually Ooh, know. It's, that sounds like an ending theory. Oh, what the fuck is the end of this movie theory? <laughs> yeah, kind of a cool, weird, ambiguous ending. I wasn't planning on talking about, but the weird trash uh, 
trash compactor sort of drilling machine. There's a lot in this movie that's pretty nasty. It is a Sergio Leone movie. Mm -hmm. We've seen a couple of these. What's our Sergio Leone history? We've got uh, the one of the other Once Upon a Times, which is Once Upon a Time in the West. Uh, I believe it's the first in the Once Upon a Time trilogy. The one we're missing is Once Upon a Time, the Mexican Revolution is what it's called. Um, for for real, that's the name. That's um, Wait, I, is this a real movie? I didn't know about it this. Is. Yeah, there's an alternate title called Duck You Sucker. Oh, okay, um, all right. But the title is was Once Upon a Time, the Mexican Revolution. Um, mm. Then we've also done, how many of The Man With No Name did we cover? Did we knock out the whole trilogy? I think we covered all three, yeah. Yeah, Fistful. because we did them with, with Kaiju. That's right. Oh, yeah. Well, man, look at, look at us. Fistful of dollars for a few dollars more and the good, the bad, and the ugly. So really the only Sergio Leone joint we're missing is Once Upon a Time, The Mexican Revolution. It's interesting to see, you know, this movie feels more modern I don't know why, but it's by a few years, I guess. But because it is part of America and specifically right. where half of our show takes place. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it takes place. It, the difference between the old Wild West and New York City is we can get to New York City from here. You literally are there, but yes. you know what I mean? Like you can get there from here. You can't get to the Wild West from here. It doesn't exist. Yeah, well, I might even have qualms with that. But I wanted to say that while watching it, it feels like one of the gnarliest Leone movies simply because it's it's in a civilized society. Right. It's full of the same stuff you see in other Leone movies and to some degree maybe even less. You know, it feels maybe a little less violent, but, you know, it's a, it's a really fucking rapey film, which is not... Uh, unheard of for the Wild West and somehow feels like, I don't know, you kind of go into a Wild West movie expecting that there's going to be some degree of just like, well, lawlessness, right? Mm -hmm. So rape, murder, uh, just a total lack of morality. The, these are um, spaghetti Western kind of elements. But when you see them in a, in a movie where people then have to like fold their coat over their arm and get back in their car and drive away, like something about that just reads is so much more fucked up to me. And, uh, and, you know, we're dealing with our, we're dealing with date rape by our main protagonist several times in the film. I don't know. Was this like a, a, uh, ugly thing for you to watch? Yeah, or I mean, were you just like, not Leone stuff? I'm ready. No, I mean, it's definitely, it's definitely a difficult thing to watch. Um, and unfortunately, the thing about when did this? This was 1980. So unfortunately, the thing about like the 1980s when it comes to cinema is like sometimes there's rape because these people are bad people and they rape women. And sometimes there's rape because boys will be boys. And uh, this... You're talking about if it's evil. If, yeah. If the portrayal, the, not just the fact there is a rape in the movie, but if simply showing it in a movie, you have your guard up that, oh no, this might be evil. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, because I think that, I think that in the 1980s, um, you still had, it was the pre, you know, 
It it was the it was the time it was a time in the world where boys will be boys and like locker room talk and you know all that toxic shit where like women were second class citizens and sexual objects and whatever and like this movie is difficult because it doesn't especially in the like the car when he rapes her in the car yeah 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 it's really difficult because the movie I, it's hard for me to tell again because it's not the wild west this is a polite civilized society it's hard for me to tell if sergio leone himself is going and then he raped her because deep down he's a piece of shit yeah or if he's going and then he raped her cuz you know he's going through a lot and he really just needed <sighs> well he his, just needed that release and she wasn't forthcoming with it his driver's reaction, I think, really helps that scene. That's the sort of relief of tension for me, the like meta relief of tension where I go, oh, the movie is aware that what it's showing is is really fucking abhorrent. Mm-hmm. But there's also this um, this level, I mean, by merely putting it on screen, you know, my guard is raised that there's some kind of like implied endorsement or something, mm-hmm. which is why I look for these cues of like the driver. And you, because what you don't want is the movie to glamorize it or for it to be, to be like unjustly sympathetic to the protagonist about that. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's doing a lot of really delicate stuff, especially as it would be viewed today. They're not just talking about, rape but something that's probably closer to date rape which is like an additional more specific term for a type of rape that has you know different complicated emotions around it so i think what the movie does and says is fair the fact that he goes and sees her later and she has a kid and like all of these things are very complicated and I think we're still okay to tell complicated stories about a real thing. It doesn't automatically make the movie evil. But there is uh, an element, I guess it's the same as how you felt, of feeling on guard. Like old cinema can be pretty backwards. Mm-hmm. It's almost like hearing an old person go on a rant that involves uh, you know, like a person from another ethnicity. And you're just like, hmm old person, mm-hmm. are you going to say something racist? Right. I've, I'm on guard that this is going to get racist. It hasn't yet, but I am watching you. Well, yeah, it's just like, it's odd that the first thing you mentioned that they were is that they were Asian. So <laughs> wherever else this goes is already stressful. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, and and I think that makes the movie even more complicated today to watch because, you know, this is, um, we're dealing with a guy who is a, He's committed a bunch of crimes. He's. he's uh, I'm sorry. You mean he's done a bunch of crimes? He goes to do crimes. Yes. <laughs> yes. He's done a bunch of crimes <laughs> with his friends. You know. <laughs> and um, when we get to the end, you know, I feel like there is a. I look back on his entire life and wonder if it was totally fucking wasted. It seems like there's a relief when he finally escapes. The crime, the money, the people, decisions he has to make about it escalating, you know, all of these different things. And also like when he's older and looking back on all of these people and relationships and wondering about them, the especially the final scene in the movie seems like relief. I mean, that's what the opium is. It's relief from all of these things. It's him getting away. It's once again, I think, an indictment 
of uh, overall the choices he's made or the life he's lived, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, it's a minefield getting to the overall conclusion. I don't think the movie's specifically circling all of these events and going, there's where you fucked up, there's where you fucked up, there's where you fucked up. But he does not seem happy at the end of his life, baffled by the garbage truck ending. But, you know, everybody's mm -hmm. making that face in that scene. I don't know. And that he has to go into hiding and is penniless. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't seem like, oh, if I could do it all over again, I'd make all the same choices. Like it it reads to me more like I should have done the opposite of everything I fucking did. Right. So yeah, let's talk about some of this New York stuff. Mm -hmm. The movie has been on the top of a list of like all-time New York films for me for a long time. It's a pretty daunting film to get through just because of the runtime, you know, I'll acknowledge that. So I've been procrastinating, procrastinating, finally shows up on the show. And the thing that shocked me the most is how much I didn't recognize the New York that it takes place in. Mm -hmm. And this has been happening, you know, I just watched this uh, Rick Burns documentary. I say just watch, but it's like, it's like 900 minutes long or something. So I've been watching little pieces of it since I've been here, and it covers the entire history of New York. I mean, really, you know, eventually it gets up to the moment of 9-11 and then covers a, a bit of that, and I think they want to do more of it, but it's mostly about, you know, the hundreds-year history. And I didn't come out the other end of that series going, oh, here's a bunch of exciting places I want to go. I went, oh, this is a totally different fucking city. So the moment this started for me, and my original idea for what I thought I wanted to do with this show was to focus on the specific time that I know from New York cinema. And this is just because of the time, you know, the, the kind of movies we watch and when, but 70s, 80s New York, I know that New York really well from movies. And 42nd Street, right? Mm -hmm. We... Um, our show is very started very grindhouse oriented. We are doing this exploitation journey this year. And, you know, I came here and I wanted to learn about this thing that I knew had kind of disappeared, which was all of these old movie houses, the grindhouse theaters, eventually the porn theaters that existed on 42nd Street. And the thing that I was fucking obsessed with that I just, I still am hung up on is you can't go there. That place doesn't exist. It has mm -hmm. been burned off the planet Earth. You can't visit it. You can't, I'm, I just moved here. I'm like, hey, I can go see 42nd Street. I know a lot of it's gone. You know, Disney came in. This is Times Square, basically, um, if you don't know the sort of layout. But all of these theaters that, you know, this used to be a B-movie a haven, a mecca of just smutty, avant-garde art house, but really like mostly smutty cinema. And now it's Disney stores and the giant billboards in Times Square. And I'll watch these old documentaries and I'll see this stuff walking through it. But if you go there today, literally none of that stuff is there. It would not even be worth it to you 
to take a sort of walking tour to point like, oh, and here used to be this movie palace and this, you know, theater and here's where this place. Because you wouldn't even recognize the, not only has the, have the things been bulldozed, but other stuff is built there. Big, giant, bright neon stuff. You would be better off taking a tour of Central Park and talking about the city that used to exist there. I mean, even an empty lot would do better. Mm -hmm. And so this idea that a important landmark on the face of the earth for Grindhouse Cinema and for a lot of the 70s, we watch a movie like Taxi Driver and see them walk through this area that today I live close enough to pop over there and walk through it, but can't actually walk through it. Mm -hmm. That kind of made me crazy. And so this was my big revelation with Once Upon a Time in America is there's a few there's a few pieces where I go, oh, I know where that is or I recognize that thing. But one of the things that I came to realize just in the last year of being here that's changed the way I think about New York is that it moves faster than other cities in terms of the kind of turnover of buildings things opening and closing the uh you know there are so many cliches here about like it'll be a a nice city if they ever finish building it Mm -hmm. you know or the sort of like just things that exist that don't two weeks later and now it's a different a different building altogether and this happens with every city right Mm -hmm. over a hundred year period you know the place where you grew up maybe doesn't exist there anymore maybe they built a giant franchise restaurant there you know gentrification obviously is a big part of that but like you and i grew up in chicago and chicago moved a lot slower with this stuff i thought it did but when was the last time you went back well you and i've (laughs) talked about this a little bit it has changed from when we did the show there yeah and there's a lot of areas where you know like belmont and clark is a fucking target now you know it's like Mm -hmm. the the goth club from the matrix is no longer you know like that kind of stuff Mm -hmm. but in the time we were there, you know, we had haunts that you and I would go to and mm-hmm. they were mostly there the whole time we were there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that uh, that just hasn't been the case out here. Right. And it, it's been a weird, um, you know, that's really caused this kind of like anxiety in me to go to more things because I'm so, cons- there's so much to take in here. And I'm kind of like, oh no, what if this theater closes? I got to go to every Mm -hmm. fucking movie theater right now. What if one of them doesn't open back up because of COVID? And luckily, you know, all the movie theaters got through COVID okay. But the 42nd Street bit is what really kind of awakened me to that. And watching Once Upon a Time in America so much represents that because it's a hundred fucking years ago. Mm -hmm. And I do not recognize a single part of the city. It is just this always evolving thing. And so it, it kind of complicates this problem we were talking about of not only not only is it like, does this movie represent the city in the way that you know? You know, is it really the city that feel that you feel home in? So there's kind of that. But then there's also this element of, well, yeah, but for how long? You know, like now there's this whole concern of time on top of that too. The metaphor that I was bringing up earlier was them and prohibition, which I just thought was so funny and really just had me had me doubling down on thinking about this stuff because they basically fall into you know they're when they're kids they're doing like the 
the really funny salt thing with mm-hmm. uh, the boats, which I just love. Real genius little thing, magic moment in this movie. But eventually they fall into prohibition uh, uh, bootlegging. And they are doing well. They're getting the money. It's, uh, they are just kingpins of this. And one day they're sitting there and they just turn around prohibition, you know, like the next fucking year or whatever. And suddenly everything that they had built, their, their whole uh, setup is just torn out from under them. And I thought, man, if that isn't the most New York thing in this fucking movie, <laughs> this whole like, and even more so at this moment in in her lifetime with COVID, that you kind of think the world's going one way and suddenly you just have to fundamentally rethink, you know, entire business models, just stuff doesn't work that way. At the time we're recording now, there's this whole push with Manhattan where none of the real estate is full because everyone's working from home. And it's it's doing crazy stuff to the entire economy because if people aren't going to the offices, then nobody's eating at any of the restaurants there, then nobody's shopping there. So New York's kind of, um, it's starting to expand and people are moving out to other parts of it. And that makes me think about some peewee stuff. <laughs> but I'm going to put a pin in that for a second because I just have to talk to you about Peewee Herman mm-hmm. coming back after all these years and what a fucking crazy thing this is. Oh my God, it's, it's one of the questions that I've always wondered um, is in in the 1980s and and 90s when when Pee Wee's Playhouse and Pee Wee's Big Adventure when when Paul Rubens had really sort of like become an American culture figure with Pee Wee Herman, I've always wondered like what was it like to have that going on in a place where society had accepted that that was a popular thing. Yeah, you know, <laughs> and then to see him do one in modern times, you know, this movie's like, what, six years old? It's like, to me, watching watching Pee-wee's Big Holiday is like, was it always this weird against the backdrop of the planet it was on? Or is it, ex- is it extremely weird now because this planet is less weird than the 1980s? I tried to get myself hyped for this by watching old Pee-wee stuff, uh-huh. and I was really shocked. I put on the show first, and I'm watching a little bit of the show, and I'm like, wow, this is the fucking weirdest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> this, is, this must be too old. This must be too old. And so then I watched a trailer for the first movie, and I'm like, yeah, this is a Burton film. It's a proper film. It's got structure. It's got you know movie tropes. This will feel more familiar. And I'm watching it, and I'm like, no, this is weird. This is really weird. This was a movie. Mm-hmm. People watch this as a movie. It's so, but Pee Wee, he's so strange. And then I watched the trailer for the second movie and it didn't bode any, any better. And so then I was so fucking excited because I had a magic trick that was about to be done. You know, I knew that I could hit a button and this thing would play that would basically eliminate the variable of, no, 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 it's old though. That's why it looks weird. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, okay, well, let's, let's set it today then. What'll happen? And, um, and it's still pretty fucking weird, I think. It's, I think it's weirder. Yeah. No, this movie, this movie is interesting because it feels, because you eliminate the, you eliminate the, the distance in time, 
Mm. So much of this, I don't know, man. It's it's funny because I saw this movie literally the moment it came out. Like I literally fired it up at midnight when it dropped. Um, I remember I the fu- second that yes. came out. Yeah. Yes, and I was I was fucking jazzed because I fucking love Pee Wee, and um, I remember watching it and going. I had this I had this very weird sensation of this is definitely for me, right? Uh-huh. And I'm like watching it and I'm going, this is for me and I'm enjoying this at like a 10. Mm-hmm. But I was like paranoid thinking about the rest of the world that may also watch it and go, what is this? Yeah, how is this going to play? And it like negatively affected my good time. <laughs> You were concerned, what, for Paul or? I don't know. There was just something where I was like, maybe I felt like I was getting outed in some way. Oh, interesting. There was just like, there was something where like Pee Wee came on and I'm like, finally, this thing that I truly want from start to finish in its entirety that is perfectly tailored for me. And I'm like, oh shit, what if other people find out this is a thing I like? Yeah, yeah. And the opening like, credits come up and it's like, Michael said this would be a good idea. Yeah. Dedicated to Michael Kester, the one guy who promised us this would totally work and he would watch it. Yeah. And it, it and it's funny because like I feel like Pee Wee in the, the in the eighties and 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 the movie and all of that is is one thing, but I feel like now it's almost Dolly esque. Like watching Pee Wee's Big Holiday, it felt like like the old Pee Wee's felt Burton esque. Uh, I know, you know, we talk about um, Tim Burton. We Tim Burton was one of the first directors that got me into film, like when I was like fucking ten, mm-hmm. and I didn't even real, you know, like it was the first awakening I had where I was like, wait, hold on, Beetlejuice, Batman Returns, Pee Wee, Mars Attacks, Edward Scissorhands are all the same guy. And that was when it kind of occurred to me like, oh, so like you can just find things you like by finding out the people who make them make other things. Hmm. So I feel like Pee-wee's big adventure in 1988 was very like Burton-esque where it like had whimsy and charm and it was like, it was like dark with all the light shining on it. Um, and so like, it wasn't like scary dark. It was, it, there was, it, you know, it's that like twisted darkness that Tim Burton like became known for. Sure. But I feel like now, I feel like Pee-wee's Big Holiday is like fucking a Louis Buñuel movie. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think about it that way, but yeah, it is. Uh, I was trying to explain away the caricature. That's what I was doing. Mm-hmm. The sort of like animated nature. I was trying to go, oh, it's like something. I don't know. It's like a cartoon or it's like a... Mm-hmm. And I couldn't ever get there. And yeah, it's it's... If you try to trace back where the origins of this character are in order to like explain it and make it feel, mm-hmm. oh man, this is crazy. How did we get here? You have to understand in the 80s, this and this and this. Like, yeah, you could try to do that. That was not successful for me. A better way might be like, look at this bizarre fucking yeah. thing. <laughs> I mean, if this were French, it's just a Quentin Depew movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If there were more feces, it's just a it, who's the what's the name of the director of Greasy Strength? You know what I mean? It's like yeah. this movie. This movie to me is like it's like a kids movie from hell that kids. I don't think kids would get. It's almost like it's almost like this movie that for me it reached inside of me and went, "You still have a child in you," and I'm like, "Fucking, how did you find that?" <laughs> 
<laughs> All right, but here's what makes this even more fascinating to me is if you are a a person who already knows Pee Wee Herman, if you can't go into it cold as some surreal clusterfuck, then you have to accept that Pee Wee, the known entity that you've seen previously, which is like, you know, a very young looking adult playing a sort of arrested development child. Um, I don't know. That's I'm not going to try to explain what Pee-wee is, but you know what I mean. It's like a 20-something playing a 12-year-old. I don't know, something like that, right? Mm-hmm. The guy who plays his character Pee-wee, the forever young Pee-wee Herman, is today 70 years old. I mean, that's <laughs> that's nuts. That. So I'm already going, wow, I'm going to watch a Pee-wee movie, but today I must see what this looks like. And this is so, so fascinating to me. What could it possibly be? And then going, wait, Paul Rubens is like 70. That I mean, even when this movie is you know, mid-60s or whatever, like, mm-hmm. that to play this character who was already playing like too young and that's part of it. So what does that look like as a... 70-year-old man, as a 65-year-old man, that is so fucking crazy. And continue. it almost, it's like a special effect movie or something. It's like we're mm-hmm. watching Jurassic Park. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to be like, wow, they made dinosaurs in a movie. This is amazing. I'm like, <laughs> wow. And he's howled. And every time they cut to a close-up, I'm like staring at it, scrutinizing it. It's like we're watching Death Becomes Her again. I'm just like, mm-hmm. how'd they do this? What's going on in here? Like, what, how are they getting away with this? <laughs> and uh, and yeah, I mean, that's just fucking amazing because what, this isn't being done anywhere. Why do I mean? There's like de aging. There's you know. Yeah. You make baby Samuel Jackson or whatever, but that's not what we're doing here. What there's the Irishman, which is the inverse of Once Upon a Time in America. But there you have like <laughs> you have a control. You have a young Samuel Jackson. You have a young Robert. Right. You're you're doing a person who was never like really a person to begin with, mm-hmm. and they're not really doing it through like de aging technology. It's not the same thing. And also, for fucking what, Michael? For what? You know, they're not, they're not <laughs> telling the story of an old Pee-wee who's now looking back at a young Pee-wee and imagining, <laughs> no, he's, it's just another day. It's one day after the previous film. Yeah, and my right. mind is blown. In fact, you know yeah. it's one day after the previous film because he, True Blood doesn't exist yet. Right. You know, it's <laughs> like, they're in like some weird time space thing going on there. Yeah. So that made it so... It was just amazing to watch and such a, uh, you know, it felt like, I I mean this in the best way possible, but it felt like watching Wolfman or something. It felt like you're watching some kind of weird (laughs) creature film. And that's all before the stuff it does. And, you know, um, I I promised we'd get weird on this show, so I won't spend a lot of time talking about the actual, uh, you know, themes of the We'll gloss right over the actual themes of the movie. Sure. But there is a a pretty big chunk of this movie, which is a kind of a road movie. Mm-hmm. Pee-wee Herman has to leave his small town, which he's never left, has never even cared about what's outside of it. Mm. Yeah, to, I, and I love, hold on, but can we pause? Please, please. Because, because the premise is Pee-wee has never, ever once left his town. In the previous movie, he like, 
goes all in. Do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Like, yeah, that's funny. But in this, so, so the other thing that's insane about this movie is that while it is Pee Wee Herman, it is in a different universe than the only other Pee Wee movie. That's funny. For no reason other than, well, we need to make it hard for him to cross these train tracks. Yeah. Because yeah. in the previous movie, he like hitchhikes to fucking Los Angeles and back. Well, but I get the feeling Pee-wee kind of lives in basically Los Angeles. Yeah. Like, if if you told me this town was in California, this is like Santa Clarita or something, you know, I'd be like, yeah, basically. But, okay, so we're going to tell this story about how he goes on a road trip, moves outside his comfort zone, you know, breaks some rules. It's everything he says in the third act. I mean, it's a beautiful, mm-hmm. like, coming together of all the... And I know it's it's also, like, he's just verbally calling calling it out but it's like a way of checking your work showing your math you know he calls out the themes of the movie in the end and i'm like yep did that did that we learned this along the way yeah actually what an epic journey good job but part of that epic journey michael relies on the women from faster pussycat kill kill (laughs) and how fucking cool is that i mean how You know, for our show, you know, I mentioned this on the last movie, but our show was rooted in the days of exploitation. We've talked about that a lot this year. We're going to talk about it some more next time on the show. But Faster Pussycat was one of the early movies for me and one of the ones that kind of proved out this would be fun to go with my friends to a theater to see. And uh, we've talked plenty about Russ Meyer. We don't need to do a big Russ Meyer chunk here or anything. But... I just, it was also so fucking cool seeing like almost like a remake of Faster Pussycat right. in, in a couple scenes, you know? Mm-hmm. Like what do these these women look like recast and who would play them and like how do they function in a society that isn't, you know, the 60s and, and so divorced from today? All the reasons that, that kind of made it cool to see Pee Wee again made this really cool to see it just it felt like a special thing for our show mm-hmm. so if you didn't see this movie and sorry to spoil this for you but it is still very much worth just uh watching it for no other reason than like wow what a weird i feel like i need to find all the russ meyer fans and without tipping them off yeah. be like hey you should probably see this peewee movie just yeah you know let me know what you think well, one of the things, too, that has become increasingly apparent to me in um, post-pandemic art, um, visual art, film and television, is that there is this new wave. Um, there's this new wave of, of storytelling that is completely divorced from how storytelling, especially comedy, was done before the pandemic, where a lot of comedy pre-pandemic, the majority of comedy, was was done by having your ensemble of characters or a number of characters and they just basically took turns bashing each other for funny things that they did wrong. Mm-hmm. It was like sort of like a round robin of deprecating each other. Post pandemic, th- so th- this did exist before the pandemic with something like Parks and Recreation, but post pandemic there's been this massive resurgence looking at you Ted Lasso of like fully positive comedy where it's like the conflicts are based on emotions and in order to get over them, the rest of the people support each other. The jokes are funny, but they're not at other people's expense. All of these things. And Pee-wee's Big Holiday is really one of the, because this is Mm pre-pandemic, it's one of the first pieces of that sort of like, 
positive comedy that isn't like faith-based comedy. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's not like it's <laughs> yeah. not like yeah. it's not like your pastor rapping. Yeah. It's like what's the conflict? Oh no, Pee-wee fell in a well. But you know, like a a different movie would have had Joe Manganello be like, why is this fucking weirdo following me to New York City? Yeah, or give him a hard time about falling in a well. Yeah. Like the the gag would have been Pee-wee would keep bothering Joe Manganello. And they would keep making jokes about how he was putting up with him. But instead, this movie's like, holy shit, Pee-wee made a friend in Joe Manganiello. And now they're really good friends. And he would really like to see him at his birthday in New York City. Yeah. And the conflict becomes, Pee-wee, how are you going to go to your friend's birthday party? I'm so trained for it to go the other way. I'm suspicious of it. Yeah. I'm waiting for Joe to like push him in the fucking well, you know? <laughs> yeah. Just like. Right. Or for him to show up. The big thing I thought is he was going to show up and Joe would be like, who are you again? Or yeah, like I can't. I did. Oh yeah, I forgot that we even ran into each. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. But instead, he's just like thrilled, and then we're all thrilled because holy shit, Pee Wee went through all this stuff, and he makes it to New York City. What a lovely city, New York. They see everything that's important in New York. <laughs> uh, this Manhattan tourist attraction, that Manhattan tourist attraction. Oh look, another Manhattan tourist attraction. <laughs> So here's what was uh, really funny about seeing this outsider sort of like um, this over-glamorization of New York, which uh, what I have to say here is very positive about New York, but I do feel like the best way to talk about it is to just call out the over-glamorization. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, Pee Wee comes to New York and sees everything New York has to offer, wherein all of that falls within Rockefeller Plaza and nowhere else. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think, I feel like a lot of the representation of the city in media is Manhattan-centric. Mm -hmm. You know, like New York is literally five boroughs. Manhattan is one fucking borough. And there's a lot of stuff on it, but it's pretty fucking small compared to like Queens or Brooklyn. You know, there's uh, there's so much artistically even that goes on in the other boroughs and is just nobody knows about it. It might as well be in a small town in the middle of the country somewhere. Right. Because I'd never seen or heard of any of it until getting here. And I think, uh, you know, this is one of the reasons that Spike Lee remained such a big deal, especially in Brooklyn, because for a while, Do the Right Thing comes out and people are like, oh, so that's like kind of what Brooklyn is. And it explains like the story of Brooklyn and what a Bro- what one fucking street in Brooklyn looks like to, you know, all these people have never been to New York maybe. But the Manhattan-centric stuff aside, really the reason that I wanted to call that out specifically is I think there is, for my whole life, there was this lie that was told in movies about New York, the biggest fucking thing. And it's that New York was this impossible paradise to live in because it was so expensive. You know, if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere, right? Like that fucking lie. Mm -hmm. As if there are no minimum wage jobs in New York with people somehow getting by. As if there's no poverty in New York. You know, like you and I growing up, like on again, off again, unemployed teenagers could somehow make it in Chicago but we could never make it in New York. It's so expensive there. And like, yeah, it's a little expensive, but also like, you know, the tiny jobs you get pay a little bit more in New York. 
And also, it's really fucking big. You can head out to, you don't even have to leave the city to live cheap in New York. You wouldn't have to go to the suburbs. You could stay, you could go to Queens. There's places uh, maybe 20 minutes from here that are still accessible to all the subway. They are still within the you know city limits. Your experience wouldn't be honestly that much different than living you know 20 minutes more east. And you would do the same thing you do in any fucking major city. You'd get four roommates and you'd make a go of it. And I feel like kind of enraged about this. This is a thing mm-hmm. that's really stuck with me because for my whole life I've avoided being here since movies and TV sold me this picture of like, yeah, but it's for rich people. This is, hey, it's not fair, but like only the rich survive here. And like, I'm still a starving artist and I'm doing fine. It's It's been a lot better than it was actually pre-pandemic in Hollywood. So I see this in Peewee uh, in Peewee's big holiday. And I, I kind of wonder like, do people still have this impression of New York from TV and from film that for some reason it's only the most expensive like 14 square blocks in New York that anybody ever sees. Maybe why I like the 42nd Street stuff a lot. I don't know. It just kind (laughs) of, it shows you it's possible. It is possible to live in New York. It's not crazy. It's not a crazy thing. We have normal people here. Everybody does not work on Wall Street and is rich. All right, we have to get the fuck out of here. A couple of rich people I'd like to thank are our Patreons. Henrik Dinter, The Abbot of Unreason, Tom Leonard, Tony Gleed, and John. I kid, these are some fine, normal people who have somehow found a couple bucks to carve off every month. So what you're saying is you don't have to be some rich person (laughs) in order to be an executive producer. Look, I I just saved all you guys a lot of money in your New York savings account, okay? You can take a trip here. It won't cost as much as you think. Stay a little bit east. And you know, if that was a helpful travel tip for you, maybe you can help us out on that Patreon. (laughs) Patreon.com forward slash double feature. Next time on the show, we are continuing our journey. It's a good journey. You you mentioned a bunch of times on this episode about how we're talking exploitation. So we're going to do some more of that, like the kind where you eat other people. And then we're going to pair that with um, another French extreme movie, which one was it? It is um, maybe the kind where you eat other people. I don't know. We'll have to find out. <laughs> it's called In My Skin. That's right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, so we're doing next time on Double Feature, Man from Deep River and In My Skin. More journey, more fun. Watch more fucking film. All right. Bye. <laughs>